Time to bring in Dan Wallach. He's got a lot of answers for us. This guy's very in demand. Dan, thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. Thank you for having me on, Mike. Appreciate it. I'll see if I have all the answers. <laughs> Ira, what do you got? So, Dan, thanks a lot for coming on. I, I know you started a law firm called Wallach uh, LLC, where you're going to be the, you're the only sports betting focused law firm in the country. So that's awesome to be the first. Yeah, that, that, to, that's to true. Begin. There are other law firms that, that, that handle some aspects of sports wagering, but I opened it up with an eye towards specializing in sports wagering. Uh, law representing a lot of the stakeholders in the industry, but but I also handle a number of different gambling industry related issues: horse racing, casinos, fantasy sports, uh, contests and sweepstakes. Uh, so it's pretty much all centered around uh, the regulated uh, gaming industry. That's great. And when we've had you on, I guess was it a year ago uh, when this when the when the Supreme Court ruled that that the, the states now, it doesn't have to be Las, uh, Nevada is the only state that really allowed full casino gaming. Um, it's, tell us where we are since the ruling and what's happened across the country. Well, when the Supreme Court ruled in uh, May of 2018, the court didn't legalize sports betting. It just removed the former federal prohibition against states uh, passing sports betting laws. So once, once that impediment was, re- was removed, uh, what we've seen in the year and a half since the decision is roughly 40 states uh, introducing bills to legalize sports betting, and roughly half of them have been passed into law, and maybe 18 of the states uh, have launched sports betting operations within, within the last year and a half. So that's a pretty dizzying pace, but we're still at less than one half of the country, and some of the, some of the major states that are still on the outside looking in are, of course, Florida, Texas, California, um, Ohio, Michigan, and New York only has land-based sports betting at, at, at about seven upstate area casinos. There's no mobile betting and nothing in the southern part of the state uh, in New York City. Uh, New Yorkers have to go across the George Washington Bridge or through the Lincoln Tunnel to bet legally while they're in New Jersey. So some of the biggest uh, you know, states and the biggest markets, Massachusetts is another one, have not yet passed sports betting laws. So that's the next wave of states uh, that we're anticipating. And so where, do you, where are we in Florida in terms of what movement has there been and what, what's your prediction of, of like, when, I, when am I going to be able to just go down somewhere and, or on my app and start betting on dolphins, Steelers, everything like that? Well, I don't want to encourage you to go into the illegal marketplace, but I think for the rest of uh, 2020, the, 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 uh, the smart money is probably on nothing getting done. And Florida is uh, unique in two important respects. Uh, I'm talking about from a legal perspective. There are two barriers that are uh, potentially impeding uh, sports betting becoming legal in this state. Number one is the state constitution. Last year, Florida voters overwhelmingly passed a measure that would take the subject of casino gambling expansion and put that exclusively in voter control. And there are several, many people who think that sports betting as a casino amenity is something that would be captured by the definition of casino gambling. So in order to legalize it, you have to go through the voters in a statewide referendum, basically a ballot question. Uh, I'm in the other, uh, the other camp. I don't believe that casino gambling is is the same thing as sports betting. They're two different verticals. They're defined in different ways, but it's still a barrier. And as long as there's the threat 
that there will be litigation over any sports betting law, I think it makes some lawmakers potentially skittish. And then there's the second barrier, which is the uh, Seminole Tribes Gaming Compact with the state of Florida, which grants the tribe exclusivity uh, in certain forms of ga- gaming and, and, get, and protects them from any gambling expansion outside of what is already allowed. So if, if Florida goes ahead and passes a sports betting law, uh, there's a concern that it will trigger a violation of the Seminole Tribes Compact and give the tribe the right to withhold you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue-sharing payments. So Florida has obstacles that other states, most other states don't have, namely the constitutional uh, issue as well as the tribal issue. Right, and that's one thing I see in New York. I saw that where New Jersey right now is past Las Vegas in terms of, of betting. There's more people, there's more money being bet in New Jersey than, than all of, 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 Las, of Nevada, which is a, which I guess. Well, it's not because New Jersey is such a popular state. It's not because New Jerseyans are crazy about sports betting, but New, New Jersey is drawing in the New York City consumers. So the Garden State is basically capturing. Um, you know, you know, market share that otherwise would belong to New York State through New York City. So New Jersey's performance uh, is certainly going to maybe you know mirror or at least exceed Nevada's, largely because uh, they have a stranglehold over the New York City, New Jersey, you know, you know, tri-state area. There's no gambling and there's no sports betting in Connecticut. Very little of it in New York State, and then New Jersey has all those mobile. Um, mobile betting opportunities. So New Jersey is really packing a triple punch because they can draw in from, uh, you know, the 10 million plus New York City, greater metropolitan area. So not to, just we're talking to Dan Wallach of the Wallach LLC law firm, the only sports betting law firm in the country. We appreciate you coming on and one of the top experts in sports law. And so when Miles Garrett hit uh, Mason Rudolph over the head with a helmet, uh, a week ago, I was at the game. I was, you know, people next to me was like, they have to. Someone said, "Who is Steeler fans?" Like, he has to be arrested. And then everyone's like, "Why is he being put in jail? Where are the police?" And I'm like, "It's not going to happen." But I thought about what the days I took sports law in law school in terms of the time when, like, what would have to happen on a field, and when it has happened, when a player has actually been arrested for an on-field action, not off-field action, but actually something that happens on the ice rink, on the basketball court, on the football field. Well, you know, most of these on-ice, on-court incidents occur in furtherance of the object of the game. I mean, 20, 35 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, I don't, I'm, I'm dating myself, but when uh, the Philadelphia Flyers gooned it up against the New York Rangers and basically used their, uh, you know, their, their, their physical, thuggish players to beat up on the weaker players, um, they weren't getting arrested or being charged with assault because what they were doing while it was sort of in violation of the rules of the game, arguably, it was, it was in furtherance of the object of the game, which is to win. And um, when, you know, if we're talking about hockey fights or after-whistle skirmishes, those are sort of associated with the underlying object of the game. But swinging your helmet at a player as a weapon, uh, there, is no, there is no nexus between that act and trying to win the game. So eventually, uh, we will see, I think, it's, it's depending on, on the incident, but if, but if uh, Rudolph had you know, suffered a serious head injury, yeah, I think Miles Garrett would have been arrested. He's very lucky that there were no ensuing, ensuing serious injuries. Uh, so he's lucky he didn't get arrested, but the issue of NFL discipline is somewhat complicated by virtue of the fact that he was suspended indefinitely without a set punishment. 
And it, it, it does kind of beg the question, are there any standards here? Is the league uh, simply just, you know, making these disciplinary decisions, you know, basically, you know, by the feet of their pants without having a definable standard? I mean, surely he should serve a minimum of six games, but suspend them for six games, suspend them for a season to simply say it's an indefinite suspension basically is the equivalent of as long as the NFL feels like having him on the sidelines, he's ineligible to play. And I, I think that kind of strikes at the heart of the, uh, of the difficulty in, in, the, in, in the relationship between the players' union and the NFL, since some of these disciplinary decisions are not tied, rationally tied to any set standard. So, um, so one last question, Dan, is, is um, one of the topics that we haven't covered a lot on my show would be Colin Kaepernick, but it's probably discussed more than anybody. And last week, Colin uh, was invited and it seemed like he had to deal with the NFL to have a tryout or a, not a tryout per se, but a sort of a, an exhibition where he was able to show a, a training camp aspect. I don't know what they were going to call it, a workout, really, for all the teams to watch him play. And 2014 was just to come. At the last minute, he changed his mind and moved to a place an hour away, and only eight teams went. Yeah. Talk about, like, why, why did the league have this workout for Colin when they really has never – it's almost unprecedented for any player ever to have this. And, and was it trying – was the league trying to avoid a collusion claim? And what were some of the aspects of that? Yeah. Well, Ira, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. In the history of the National Football League, I'm not aware of any uh, precedent of the league holding a workout solely for one player who's, a, who's an experienced NFL player. The, the league does – you know, they participate in the NFL scouting combine and individual teams bring players in for workouts. I'm not aware of any prior situation where the league has done this uh, in a special case for one player. The cynic in me believes that uh, the league is on the defensive here and wants to create a uh, sort of a perception that it is doing everything possible uh, to, to, you know, make Colin Kaepernick as employable as possible in, in, as part of a defensive uh, you know, you know, in defense of any potential future collusion claim, they want to be seen as plausibly aiding his future employment possibilities. So the whole thing could be viewed as a sham that the league set up uh, just to, to just for the perception that it is trying to, uh, you know, place him in the best possible light. Uh, but the real re- another reason the league may have done this investigation or, or commenced this workout on a league basis is because if individual teams had brought him in for a workout, you know, 40 to 60 percent of the fan base, uh, you know, we live in such polarized times that no matter who the team is, there is a significant percentage of that fan base. Uh, that believes that Colin Kaepernick you know, shouldn't be in the NFL anymore, and if a team were to bring him in for a tryout, it would risk alienating uh, a certain percentage of their own fan base. So having the league do it uh, in, in some ways provides the individual teams with the cover to be able to uh, watch the workout and evaluate Kaepernick for themselves. Now, the reason that the workout got shifted is that the National Football League presented Colin Kaepernick with a, with a release document, a release and a waiver that um, went a little bit, that went considerably beyond uh, the risk of injury. It, it could be it could be interpreted based upon the language used in the release as absolving the NFL from any and all employment-related claims, even past collusion claims. Remember, he settled a lawsuit over uh, collusion issues uh, last year, but that was only. Uh, through a particular, you know, time frame. 
He still hasn't been playing in the league over the last year, year and a half, uh, and, and going forward through and including this season. So he still has potential uh, collusion claims which have accrued. And the, the release that the league wanted Kaepernick to sign uh, was so broad that he could be, in essence, giving up any future collusion claims for past discrimination for past collusive efforts and you know he, from his perspective he wanted he wanted to grant the NFL a release on on anything relating to the risk of physical injury but what he wasn't willing to do was waive employment related claims and given the relationship and the litigation history between the league and Kaepernick uh, I think the league should have anticipated that that was going to be a non-starter so well, anyway, Dan, I, I hope to have you on again. I mean, there's so much we could talk about, and I really appreciate you coming on. I know you're super busy. So this is Dan Wallach of the Wallach at Legal LLC, uh, the top sports betting attorney in America, and you've been on every network, anything I've seen you've been on. You've been tremendous, and I really appreciate you coming on the show, and we'd love to have you back uh, sometime soon. I'd love to. Thank, thanks for having me on tonight, Ira and Mike. Thank you, and uh, look forward to joining you again in the future.